Hey, what's up, guys? How we doing? Hey! Timmy finally gave me an opportunity to talk to you guys. But he said I had to practice my talk in a room that was 50 degrees so we could play basketball in the gym. Yeah, you're welcome. It's for you, buddy. All for you. If we... <laughs> That's good, man. All right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you be telling. Woo! Hey, so my name's Ernie. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church, and in this Sunday, I really am excited about what we have going on. It's, it's Steve is not just a counselor; like he runs a counseling center that is beginning to spread throughout all, like throughout the Midwest with our salt companies, our salt network churches, and and the the, the reason why we're having that sermon on Sunday is because. Reading a statistic that mental illness is taking apart, like at levels in college students, at a higher level than any other generation that's ever existed. And there's so many factors that happen in your life that just make your emotions more extreme, the things that are happening more extreme, that there is like a health crisis happening in our country. And so, as a church that loves college students, we're really compelled to do it. And the unique thing about this Sunday is not only you get to hear a guy talk for about 35 minutes about it, but you get to text in anonymous questions that we're going to answer on a podcast afterwards. So you can ask whatever questions, whether it's for your friend, for you. You know, you don't have to be named unless you want to be named. And we're going to answer as many of them as we can in about an hour podcast afterwards, just me and him sitting down. And so you'll have an opportunity to dive into that resources. We're also going to have a ton of resources for you to take. Like we've been speaking to counselors throughout the city. We've been looking for books and great information just to have it on hand for our people, our church, to help care for them. And if you've never been to Mercy Hill Church, you should check it out. And the other thing you should definitely check out is conference, because Timmy told me when I was walking back to get water, if 100 people go to conference, you get to shave his head at conference. So, yeah, he said that. I remember he said, he said it to me. I said it. I'm his pastor and his boss. I'll hold him to it. His head gets shaved in February. Can we see that happen? I would... And what I heard is he's got a deformed head. Like, it's like all these weird bumps, and that's why he hides it in the hair. You got to see it. He's going to be wearing hats for months. It'd be great. All right? That would be amazing. No, but seriously, you should go to Salt Conference. I'll be there. I'll be bringing a group of people from our church to check it out because it is truly a very special thing that God is doing and a great opportunity for you. But let's get into our text tonight. What we've been talking about the entire semester has been one sermon by Jesus. One sermon. All right? That's how good that sermon is, is that we got to break it up for 30-minute pieces all semester say, this is what Jesus is saying in this moment. And as we come, this is the last part of his sermon. The last thing he says, get this, it's super complex. It's going to take you forever to figure out. You know what he says? He asks one question. Are you going to do what I'm asking you to do? That's the entire talk tonight. That Jesus is asking us in the sermon, in fact, beckoning us to do the things that he's asking us to do. And we all know that we're really bad at that. <laughs> right? We're not great at doing that kind of thing. Jesus knew that he had a great teaching. He didn't know, need people to tell him that. His question to his audience was, is this going to transform? Is this going to change your life? Is this going to direct anything about you? Because if this is just a self-help talk, if this is just like 30 minutes for us to feel better about ourselves, if this is just getting like some, you know, little, like some little nuggets of wisdom or things to add on to, we're wasting our time here. Because what the word of God is meant to do in our life is totally and radically transform us. Yet so many of us live, so many Christians, I don't want to say us, I don't want to say y'all, but so many Christians live such untransformated lives. 
There's nothing transformational about what's going on in their life. You know, I'm going to tell you a kind of funny story about me. Uh, my wife is awesome. She's a yoga teacher, all right? In fact, she teaches hot yoga. And she's so good at teaching hot yoga that the place that she's teaching at is giving her, like, raises. And they're, like, calling out to, it's like a company that's all throughout the whole, the whole country. And they're, like, putting her on emails about what she's done. Like, every class she's had has, like, 65 to 70 people. Like, they're, wait, they're like, waitlisting her. Like, people are changing their schedule around to be... Like, in her class, we're like, all right, this is enough. We get it. Your wife's awesome. All right. She's gonna, let me tell you why I'm telling you that. It's because one time I had the audacity to give her workout critiques. <laughs> that she was at home working through her flow, thinking about what she's going to do. And by the way, if you ever go do hot yoga, you're going to die. It's the hardest thing on the entire planet. Doing her workout and doing that stuff. And I was like, hey, actually, if you're going to do a push-up, you got to get a little lower. And I'm like, she's like, okay. And I was like, hey, if you're going to squat, like, you got to do, like, a little bit more like this. And she's like, I didn't even get up off the couch. Just, like, chips are just falling down my dad bod. (laughs) And she's just like, "Uh, for real? Like, are we talking about this right now? Like, hello, look at you. I'm like, what? I'm like, I used to work out. I used to work out. I I bitched, like, 250 in high school. She's like, Ernie, it's half a life ago. You can't count that anymore. And I was like, that's a fair point. I was being that guy. I was, that was who I was being. I was being that guy. You know that guy. Everybody knows them. It's that guy that's not in shape but talks about the glory days about when they were in shape. And every time there's a conversation about, like, well, there's this thing I used to do in high school, college students. If you're doing it in college, by the way, guys, you got to let it go then. Or you're going to be 37 do what I'm doing. You know, where you can't let it go those days. You used to do those things. You don't do those things anymore. But, you know, everybody knows that guy. It talks about what they're not doing the things that are meant to, but they're always like, Mr. Actually, like, actually, what you really got to do is do, like, 50 squats every morning and lift heavy. And they have opinions on how they eat, but they don't eat right. They can quote people that they, and they disagree with these people as their job to do these things. And yet, when you look at them, they don't reap any of the fruit of what they're talking about. I was that guy. And can I be honest that a lot of times Christians are those guys? Not about working out, but about like, you know, like we know all the information about Christian stuff. We'll argue with one another about what the Bible says. And is this the right interpretation? Is that the right interpretation? We bother other people with that information and we become very annoying to them because they don't see the fruit of that in our lives. That we don't look any different than what they look like. And it's pretty foolish. See, what Jesus is going to ask us tonight is, are you actually about it? Are you actually about the things that I'm teaching? Are you just playing a game? And if you're just playing a game in tonight's passage, Jesus got a warning for you. But if you're about it, he's got a promise. He's got a blessing for you. That's something that he wants for you. And I can't wait. So let's just get into it. Let me pray and we're going to hop on into this. Jesus, thank you so much for the word of God. Thank you for this word right here. It's a story that many of us have heard. It's a story that many of us have misinterpreted. It's a story that many of us have looked at and not really understood the significance of what you're actually saying. And so God, at this moment, I pray that you begin to open our hearts and minds, that we would be the kind of people that aren't hearers of the word of God, but doers of the word. That we be doers, not so that we be pleasing to you or not so that we can earn salvation, but that we would live in the blessing of living in your pattern of life and stop living in the death that we live in the world's pattern of life. 
that we'd be people that were different around us, not just to be different, but experience the blessing and goodness of God, that we would experience the good life that God promises. Amen. Okay, if you can open up to Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, it says this. Everyone then who hears, I'm going to read the entire thing, and I got three points. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears the words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell. And the floods came, and the winds blew, and it beat against the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Verse 28, verse 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd was astonished at his teachings. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not, and not as their scribes. Jesus' right, teachings is different than our teachings. I got, three, I got three points for us. Here's the first one. The good life is about doing what God says, not just hearing it. You want to live the good life that he has for you? It is not just about hearing the word of God, but it's about doing the word of God. Listen to what he says in that first verse. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. Now, what are these words? It's the entire sermon that he's been preaching. He's been preaching an ethics, a pattern of life about what does it look like to live in the kingdom of heaven? What does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? He's taught us many things. Like, I'm going to just go over some of these. He's taught us that we, how people are truly blessed. He's taught us how to be salt and light in our world. He's taught us not to hate. He's taught us not to lust. He's taught us about divorce. He's taught us about how to tell the truth and keep his commandments. He tells us how to, to check on someone if they've harmed you. He's taught us how to love our enemies. He's taught us how to give, pray, and fast. He's taught us how to store up treasures in heaven rather than earth. He's taught us not to worry about anything. He's taught us not to judge others according to others, our, our, our own standards. He's taught us to ask, to seek, and to knock on the door for his blessing. And he's taught us to walk the narrow path and watch out for the false teachers. Those are all the things that he's taught in that moment. It is a robust, beautiful picture of what it looks like to walk in the pattern and in the rhythm of God. Now, notice what he says. He doesn't say, just memorize those things. In fact, he doesn't say it at all. He doesn't say, repeat those things. He says, do those things. Jesus is asking them to obey. That's a word we like to play around with as Christians. Look, if I look at my nine-year-old son, Jackson, I say, go clean your room. And he comes down and he says, hey, dad, I memorized what you said to me. I could actually say it in Greek and Hebrew now. And I'm going to have a group of friends are going to come over and we're going to talk about what that would look like to clean my room. Would that be being obedient to what I asked him to do? It absolutely would not be. It'd be funny and sarcastic. I would probably laugh at him. And then tell him to get back up there and go do what I told him to do. That would be playing a game. And Jesus is not interested in playing games. He's not interested in you checking a box. He's not interested in what you would affiliate with on your Instagram bio. 
He doesn't care about what you say in your TikTok. He doesn't care about any of those things whatsoever. What he desires is for you to follow him, to obey him. Why? So that he can control you? No. Look back at the passage. Why does he want you to do what he says? That you would be wise. That God as a loving father has something for you. He doesn't want to take something from you. That's hard for us in this world like to imagine because every free thing is a gimmick. It's a rug pug, rug pull. It's a lie. And for some reason we apply that to God. Let me ask you a question. What does God need from you? Like, what do you bring to the table that he can't already have? What is so special about what you have that he has to go to this cosmic trick to get it from you and use you to do something? What can you do for him that he cannot do for himself? Guys, God has not come here to control you. It is a bloated sense of arrogance that we would ever think of ourselves of that. God created all of the universe. He stands outside of time and space. And because of his mercy and his goodness, like a loving father, he's saying, hey, I want you to walk this pattern of life. Why? So that you would be wise. And wisdom is the greatest thing you could strive for. Wisdom is the greatest thing you could ever strive for. In fact, Proverbs 8.11 says this, for wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Why is wisdom better than jewels? Because a rich, foolish man will lose his riches, but a rich, poor man will find those riches. Ecclesiastes 7.19 says this, wisdom gives strength to the wise men more than 10 rulers who are in the city. Wisdom is the highest thing you can seek after. That's why when God approached Solomon in the Old Testament, he said, hey, I'll give you whatever you ask. And Solomon said, I'll take wisdom. I'll take being wise. Why? Because through wisdom, he could have attained all those other things. In fact, God said that was the greatest thing you could have asked for, and I'll give you all the other things that you didn't ask for. Wisdom, guys, is different than knowledge. You understand that? Like you can know a lot about the word of God and still be a fool. See, when you don't know what's right and you do what's wrong, that's called being ignorant. But when you know what's right and you do wrong, that's called being foolish. But when you know what's right and you do what's right, that's called being wise. Wisdom is applying knowledge in your life. And what God wants to teach you is how to apply the knowledge you know about him so that you would live a wise life. That is the instructions he's giving us. Now, here's the blessing. Read it with me again. Look at verse 24 and 25. See if you can spot it. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fail because it had been founded on the rock. Did you guys catch the promise? Did you catch the blessing? Do you see it? What is the blessing? What is the promise? Somebody say it for me. Is that when the storm comes, you're still standing afterwards. 
You notice that what Jesus said is that if you do these things, he doesn't say there won't be any storms. He said, in fact, no. In fact, in Scripture, he promises there will be storms in your life. There will be things that are going to knock you over and knock you flat. Those are going to happen. They're going to happen because we live in a fallen world that is broken. They're going to happen because we live around fallen humanity. That will hurt you. It's going to happen because you're fallen humanity and you're going to hurt yourself. Storms are going to happen. And the promise of God is this, is that if you draw near and if you follow his pattern of life, when that thing that's meant to lead to your destruction will actually leave you standing stronger than ever before. I got a story of it in our church. I don't know if you ever had a chance to meet Bree or Caden White. They are founding members of this church. I knew them when I lived in Texas. And they moved up here a year ago to help start Mercy Hill Church, a church that was gonna love the city and love the campus. What many people didn't know about the Whites was this, is that Bree's dad was dying of cancer. It was his second bout. He was cleared of cancer and it went back years later. And now it had gone into his body in such a way that it was like, he's gonna die soon. And he kept outliving the expectations of it. And I remember seeing Bree and Caden with their commitment to move here and having conversations with him and being like, hey guys, whatever you wanna do. Cause they had a fork in the road. Bree's dad lived in Colorado. Cincinnati is not next to Colorado. And they could move to Cincinnati, they could move to Colorado and live out the last couple of months with their dad. And no one would have blamed them. And said they decided to move here. In the storm of their life, they did something that no one else, that many people would, hardly anyone would ever do. That they moved to love a group of people that they had never met. To a place they have never been. Leaving, a per, leaving beside the person they loved the most. And when you talk to Bree about that moment, because her, her dad passed this year, this past year. And I'm like, Bree, how are you doing? And she said, Ernie, the storm was so hard. It was so difficult. There's nights I stayed up crying myself to sleep. But God was so near. And we were so right to follow him here. The world doesn't understand that because that's a strength that doesn't come from natural means. That comes from drawing near to God's pattern of life and following him above all else and laying aside everything else. The promise that God gives you that as you become wise, that he will make you strong to withstand the worst storms not because of your strength, but because of the foundation that you are resting your life on, which is the word of God and the person of God. And the future that he has for you is not one of destruction, but one of triumph. See, here's the second point I have for you. Storms are gonna come. The question is, have you prepared yourself to weather them? They're gonna come because we live in a broken world. They're kind of come because we're around broken people. 
and they're going to come because we are broken and we hurt ourselves constantly. In fact, the majority of the storms in your life will be formed by the decisions that you made. And because storms are going to come, he wants us to be prepared and not foolish. What does foolishness look like? Look at verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Jesus was saying, when we are hearers of the word but not doers, we're foolish. Because how foolish is it to look at the goodness of our God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the work of the cross, the character of him, and say, nah, I'm going to trust me. Nah, I'm going to go my way. It's like standing in front of a dam that's going to fall and saying, I was here first. Move water. It's absolutely silly. And Jesus is calling us to live to this certain pattern, not to steal our fun, but get this, guys, to preserve your life. Not to hold something from you, but to give something to you. See, the world's perspective of safety is not Christ. What the world will tell you, if you want safety and security in your life, what should be the firm foundation and rock of your life is to indulge in what the world has. It's going to say, get enough money and you'll never have to worry. Get enough fame and power, it won't be a problem. Be successful enough and storms will be kept at bay. Those things won't be able to touch you. I want to read you an excerpt from a guy that probably none of you know that I know. His name's Deion Sanders. Okay, a couple of people know him. You may know him as the head coach of, of Jacksonville State, but before that, he was like one of the most prominent athletes in sports. Like in the 90s, he was the guy. Like he was like, he, he was a, like an MVP at both baseball and football. Like he, his name, his nickname was Primetime. Because every time he was on the field, it's prime time to dial into whatever Deion Sanders is doing. And this is what he wrote about one day, about a moment in his life that was significant, where he realized this truth. This is his story. He says, there I was, driving 70 miles an hour down the highway, just looking for a place to end it all. Finally, I yanked the wheel to, the, to one side and pulled my car off the road. It skidded to a stop on loose gravel, sending up a cloud of dust. I hesitated for no more than a second or two, built up my nerve, and then put the accelerator to the floor and shot off the edge of a cliff. How had I come to such a low point in my life? Deion Sanders, prime time, Mr. Millionaire Athlete and all that. I wondered many times since that fateful day, what really brought me to that point? How could I have made it to the top of my game in both baseball and football? With so much success, so much money and fame, with commercials and endorsements, with my face all over them, running on every channel during the season, and then drive off a cliff like that. What had happened to me? I had just had the best season of my career. Everything I touched turned to gold, but inside I was broken and totally defeated. I remember sitting at the back of the practice field one afternoon, at, away from everybody, tears were running down my face, and I was saying to myself, this is so meaningless. I'm so unhappy. We're winning every week, and I'm playing great, but I'm not happy. I tried everything. I tried parties. 
women, buying expensive jewelry, gadgets, and nothing helped. There was no peace. I had everything the world had to offer, but no peace, no joy, just empty inside. The Bible described in the first chapter of Ecclesiastes as chasing after the wind, and that's exactly what I was like. I was just trying to buy myself something to make me happy, and I was even emptier than before because I could see that nothing could possibly satisfy the hunger deep down inside me. All I could do was stay busy, occupy my time, doing whatever I could to keep working so the feeling of emptiness wouldn't come to haunt me. The pain was horrible. None of my successes on the field could prepare me for the crisis in my life that led to to my suicide attempt. When I took that deadly plunge, I had reached the end of my rope. I struggled with just about everything in my life. I realize now that God had to get me to a point where he could do what he wanted to do with me. And it meant that he first had to strip me of all the comforts, all the successes, and all the relationships that I had depended on. Through the struggle and the doubts and the bitterness, he was bringing me to a point where I could see his hand in my life. On that fateful day in 1997, I swerved off the road, slammed my foot down on the accelerator, and the car just shot up like a rocket. All, by all rights, it should have flipped or turned over or nosedived, but that didn't happen. When I hit the bottom, the car started sliding awkwardly, rocks back and forth until I came down hard and slid to the bottom of the hill. Miraculously, I walked away without a scratch. Then God started sending people into my life to share the truth with me. Friends, former teammates, pastors, my attorney. Last, last late one night, I opened the Bible to a passage that said, if you confess with your mouth the, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved for with the heart one is believed unto his righteousness, and with the mouth one confesses and saved. The words hit me like a ton of bricks. I know they were meant for me. At that moment, I put my trust in Jesus and asked him into my life. Before I found Christ, I had all the material comforts and all the money and all the fame and popularity, but I had no peace. When I found Christ, I found what I had been missing all of those years. Only then was I able to trust God's will for my life. I, gave, I have a new sense of peace about what happens on and off the field. I have a passion and a hunger for the things of God, and each day I'm feeding on his word. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled, and that's how I want to be. I had had everything that power, money, sex could give me, but it just wasn't enough. It didn't satisfy me. I was empty inside, desperately empty. Success almost ruined my life, but thank God. That's a story from a man that has everything that most of you dreamt about having. And it led him to almost kill himself, and he's not the only story. Don't you understand, guys, when we walk away from the pattern of life that God has for us, it's not leading to life, but to our ruin. And our loving Father, who needs nothing from us or wants nothing from us, decides to love us enough to point us to a different road, to pull us from our foolishness. Here's the last question. How do we live wise and not like fools? McLaren, he said at the very beginning, he said, do all these things. And you may be like, wait a minute, Ernie, as we've been going through this sermon, 
I've heard Timmy and Dylan and others regularly say that there's a standard that God's calling us to and we actually can't do it. That we need the gospel. And that is absolutely true. See, as Jesus is saying, and I'm saying right now, when I say do these things, we're not talking about earning relationship with God. You can't earn it. You can't try to do all these things and then one day be in right, good relationship with God. That is not how it works. See, as you probably heard Timmy and Dylan and others, as they did regularly, they say, guess what? This was, is the thing that God was calling you to do, to love your neighbor. But you don't do that. But Jesus did. So you need to lean on Jesus' righteousness and not your own. See, if you want to stop living like a fool and start living like the wise man, it begins with this. Trusting and believing the gospel. That you have no righteousness on your own. But Jesus Christ came here and lived the life you were meant to live. Meaning he did not sin. Meaning he didn't just not do what he's not supposed to do, but he always did what he was supposed to do. And then he bore the sins of the world on the cross. And God punished sin. God the Father punished sin and God the Son. And now if you believe in him, he will accredit to you his righteousness. It's like you switch rap sheets. That Jesus got your rap sheet and you got his. And now you stand before God Almighty, righteous and holy. None of it you have accomplished. It has all been accomplished by Christ. That's step number one. Now, for Christians in this room, people who have done that, you need to understand that you have to return back to the gospel in the dependence upon Jesus. Because as you pursue the life God is calling you to do, you must do it like this. This is the way I like thinking about it, that we must be gracefully following Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That as you became a follower of Jesus, he has entrusted to you, he has placed within you the Holy Spirit that is meant to direct you. And he's given you directions to lean on him and depend on him. And what we need to do is we need to depend on God to produce these things within us. So how do we produce these things? Not through your own power or your own ability or your own discipline, but through your connection and deepening in relationship with Christ. The gospel is an anti-effort. It is anti-earning. To Christians, we are meant to pursue these things, but that's why we must be graceful to one another because you will fail over and over and over and over again. And in those moments, you must preach the gospel to yourself. You must say, you know what? I've been forgiven by my king. This has been paid for. I am righteous. That was the wrong direction. I'm going to stand up and walk in the right direction. And after time of you doing that, you will begin to see these things, these, character, these characteristics, these patterns give birth in your life. That not only when you stop just reading the word of God, but then you begin going, okay, Lord, what does it look like for me to, what does it look like for me to obey this? And not theoretically, what do I need to do in the next 24 hours to obey what I have just heard from the word of God? The next hour. See, God is not calling you just to play a word game. He's calling you to step in and activate your faith 
by actually doing the things that he said to do as a Christian. Not to earn salvation, but to live in the pattern and rhythm that God is calling you to live that leads you to life, not to death. That puts your house on the firm foundation, not on the soil, of, uh, not on the sand. That is just going to be destroyed by the storms that are going to come your way. So what are you going to do, Salt Company, with the things God has said to you in your life? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you've given us a pattern, that you've given us a direction, that you've said, hey, this is what I have for you. Thank you that you love us enough to not just say, hey, we've saved you. Now just go play in the mud. Go do whatever you want. That you called us not just to save us from what, we've been, what has enchained us, but you've called us to life that is free and good. And you, you care so much about that that you're going to spell it out to us in a sermon to say this is what it looks like to live as a citizen of heaven. This is what it looks like for the fruits of the Holy Spirit to be in your life. This is what it looks like, the, eth the ethics of being a follower of Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that these men and women in this room would take your word seriously. And it wouldn't be a game to them. It'd be holy. It'd be holy in their lives because it's your word. And we don't want to abuse it. We don't want to treat it lightly. We don't want to put it underneath the culture or our thoughts. We want to put it above us because that's where it belongs. And we want to follow it. And God, I believe if we're a church, if we're a salt company that does those kind of things, we're going to see massive impact on our campus. We're going to see transformation in our life. That the world would, have, would just begin to question, like, whoa, what is this? Who are these people? God, if we were just people that just did what we said, we'd be different than the rest of the world because the world never does what they say they're going to do. But more importantly, can we do what you said? Not out of obligation, but out of trust that we know where you're leading us is to our best life. That you're leading us to a blessing. You're leading us to wisdom. You're leading us to the truth. So our houses, our lives, may we set it on the foundation and work of Jesus and say, this is where I'm gonna live. I'm not gonna move from it. For far too long, we've lived in the sands. A place that would not uphold us. A place that couldn't deal with the biggest problems in our life. Let's do something different. Let's obey the king of the universe. Amen.